Hello and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson and today we're going to be talking about the rights of nature. This is the rights for a river to run or for trees to grow or for animals to live and thrive in their natural environments. And we have some special guests with us today. We have Sarah Matthews. She's an attorney and co-founder of Western Mass Rights of Nature. We have David Brule. He's a president of the Nolambika Project. And we have Olivia Charles, who's a graduate student at UMass Amherst, who's studying this very concept. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Uh, it's Thanks. great to be here. Mm -hmm. So let's get started. Sarah, what are the rights of nature? Rights of nature is a global movement that's aimed at reforming Western-based laws and legal systems to grant rights and standing to elements of the natural world in order to better protect these systems. So I'm an attorney. I know firsthand, and people do if you've ever been involved in any kind of court or administrative proceeding, that we've got agencies like Environmental Protection that sound like they're protecting the environment, but in reality, the most they can do really is mitigate harm. There's no voice to the elements that are being regulated in those proceedings. So rights of nature is about trying to change that. The concept is really sort of much more closely aligned to indigenous-based knowledge systems and, and values where there's much more of a sense of reciprocity. The people are in relation to the elements of the natural world around them, and their role is to protect and care for as well as be benefited from those elements. And that doesn't exist in our system. And so that leads to this situation where it's only people and unfortunately corporations' interests that are that are sort of protected in these proceedings. And then it's, you know, we can't sort of effectively protect the elements of the natural world. So it's aimed at addressing that. In this country, um, Livia can talk about what's happening in the rest of the world. In this country, in the 70s, there was a Supreme Court case where uh, then-Justice Douglas in Sierra Club v. Morton spoke about it. It was a dissenting opinion, but he talked about how this might work in our system, where the trees or river would be given a guardian, similar to other types of proceedings. So obviously the river can't speak for itself, but a guardian could be appointed. And that's the kind of, that's how it would work in our system. Yeah, and I can just add that the rights of nature, the concept, and the movement is really interesting, and it's still developing. It's a norm that's still being experimented with and evolving um, in different locations across the world, and it's really kind of being fitted for different political or legal um, structures in these various countries and communities. So there's over 400 cases across the world. In 2008, Ecuador was the first country to include rights of nature into their constitution. And um, this was in large part because of a strong indigenous movement. Sumac Kaswe is a Quechua term which recognizes that living well depends on being in harmony with the natural world and the ecosystems with the human and the non-human. And actually in Ecuador, they've had quite a bit of success in the courts. So a mining project was recently stopped, Los Cedros, I think is what it's called, which was in part because of uh, using rights of nature. And I'll give another example. New Zealand has been, or Otaro, um, has been another country that has been a leader in this movement. So in 2014, the Te Orewera is a forest in the North Island of New Zealand that was recognized as having legal personhood. And this came about through the Waitangi Tribunal, which is a resettlement process between 
the Crown and the Māori, the Māori iwis, who have been historically, their rights have been violated. And so essentially what granting the legal personhood to Te Orewera and later the Whanganui River, also in the North Island, did um, was to remove the um, Western colonial legal and management barriers to allow for the Māori um, iwis to take care of the forest and the river and the ecosystems in line with their traditional management practices. So that means listening to the ecosystem and managing the people for the health of the ecosystems rather than the other way around. Because they're linked. One can't live without the other. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It also looks different in this country depending on how it's done. So in some communities, it's kind of linked to the assertion of democracy with a small d. Um, So in Grant Township in Pennsylvania, a community, a rural community, wanted to stop a fracking company from putting an injection well in their community, which would have polluted the groundwater and the ecosystem. And the townspeople gathered together and passed an ordinance that was recognized the rights of nature as well as their right to clean water and environment. And that kind of situation, it's, it's sort of where the local people are so sort of embedded, so connected to the environment that they're sort of inseparable, so that they're dependent on the water and the water is dependent on them. And so by sort of trying to protect both, and that's sort of a way of using rights of nature to fight back against these large corporate interests. In, in all these examples you've given, it's it's worked. It's stopped mining projects. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to have us here to talk today. So... I kind of want to um, bring David into the conversation, too. How does the concept of rights of nature apply to, let's say, protecting the Connecticut River? Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm just learning. I'm just learning about this project uh, that Sarah has uh, really raised in this part of, the, of Massachusetts. So let me just digress a little bit. I, 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 as I'm learning, I'm seeing through the lens of a whole lifetime actually living on the banks of the river. I was born and raised in the town of Montague where the river basically encircles the town on three sides. And so whatever one is doing in that particular town, you're never far from the river. So my own childhood was spent on the banks of the river in a boat a lot of times with my dog and out visiting uh, all of these uh, natural sites uh, along the river. I spent hours just alone on the river. And also in, the, in more recent times, I've, it has uh, increased meaning because my own ancestral background is part of a tribe that lived on the estuary of the Connecticut River. And so my, the lineage that I've traced has been a generations of movement up the river to where my family finally settled. Uh, And that was really uh, a revelation to me to find out that I actually had some really deep, I'd like to say, memory in my DNA of, of this river. And I'm glad that we're able to talk about the Connecticut River in particular, which is right now uh, really needy. It really needs our support. It really needs people to realize that whatever original rights the river had in its 
thousands of year history of free flowing is now pretty much impeded by a whole series of dams. And that brings us really rapidly right up to the present because my uh, organization is a stakeholder in the uh, negotiations with uh, FERC. The Federal Energy Regulatory Committee. <laughs> right. And they technically are overseeing the relicensing of a series of dams in Massachusetts. There's a different utility in charge of, of the uh, dams further up in uh, the Connecticut River in Vermont, New Hampshire. But right now, uh, myself as a Nolanbika Project representative, along with Joe Gravelin, uh, former president of the Nolanbika Project, the Elnu Abeniki, and the Chabunagongamog Band of Nipmuc Indians. We are together a team that is representing, really, the rights of the river. And we are seeking a correction of some of the abuses that have occurred due to the operation of a number of uh, facilities on the river in central Massachusetts. So a lot of uh, indigenous uh, cultural resources are being damaged and lost, among other things. So that's kind of my role right now, and I'm really pleased, as I said, having, having the Connecticut River water in my veins, I'm really pleased uh, that we can focus on the Connecticut River uh, these days, and I'm really grateful for the support of Sarah Matthews in terms of uh, giving us some guidance and some contacts with groups and people that can help us. And let's talk more about this after this break. We have been speaking with David Brule, who's the president of the Nolan Beaker Project, Sarah Matthews, an attorney and co-founder of the Western Mass Rights of Nature, and Livia Charles, a graduate student working on a thesis about this very topic. We'll be right back. Hello, and welcome back to Panorama, where we are talking about the rights of nature with Sarah Matthews, the co-founder of the Western Mass Rights of Nature Group, Livia Charles, who's a graduate student working on a thesis on this topic, and David Brule, the president of the Nolambika Project. So, Sarah, um, what is your group, the Western Mass Rights of Nature, working on right now? Well, uh, to connect with what uh, David is saying, the, um, our focus has been on this relicensing of these two high-impact hydropower facilities on the Connecticut River, the Northfield Pump Storage Station and the Turner's Dam. They're, um, they've been here around in their current formation for a, a long time, and they're in the process of being, they have been in the process of being relicensed for about a decade, and they're very destructive to the river ecosystem. And the licenses that are currently being renewed would be for another 50 years. So this is a very serious time for the river, as as David mentioned. And what we're trying to do is as sort of, we're not stakeholders per se, but we've been trying to keep abreast of what's going on with the relicensing and let people know um, we're about to enter into a very uh, critical one-year period where um, FERC... Uh, says that it's time for the environmental analysis, which means that the state of Massachusetts gets to weigh in on the terms of the relicensing because it's the state that is responsible for enforcing the Clean Water Act. And they're limited by case law to just one year 
to do whatever studies they think would be appropriate and condition the license. So it's really important for members of the public to speak up and urge uh, the Mass DEP to do their job and put uh, good restrictions into the license so that we can get the best license possible for the river. And then we also sort of more broadly want to, you know, facilitate and help communities in uh, passing rights of nature for the things they care about in their communities and, and sort of helping to facilitate that process. And that, you know, would include the, the river. Um, so tell me a little bit about what it, is it about these dams that is so destructive to the ecology of the Connecticut River? There's a lot. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so the, because of the dam, there's dewatering of all the, the um, ecosystem that's downriver. And there's also, unlike the Holyoke Dam, which has a fish passage, was uh, redesigned not too long ago, but the one at Turner's, is, is very old and is, it just is n not a very good it's my understanding fish. that one was designed for salmon, actually, yeah. not shad. Exactly. The primary fish. That and then even for fish that make it up the, the fish ladder, they're, they've got to go through these long canals. They've got to swim. These, these you know, it's sort of amazing that anything makes it up there. Mm -hmm. And then the Northfield Pump Storage Station essentially uh, is pumps water the river backwards up a hill that was uh, created by people up on the top of Northfield Mount, uh, Mountain, and it's stored up there. And then the company releases this water when it's financially beneficial for them to do so and sell the energy generated on the market. So yeah, it functions as a battery. Yeah, essentially of, yeah. it's battery storage. That's correct. Yeah. And it's energy storage, yes. And um, But all of the life, all the aquatic life that's sucked up is just dies. And so it's just very bad for the ecosystem. Um, and there have been attempt, many attempts to, to advocate for better terms of these, of these licenses and to push for a, a better fish lift, which the, currently the plan is to not put one in for another 10 years, which is kind of crazy because the people who design the fish lifts are right there in Turner's. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Yeah, if I can chip in this, David here, um, what Sarah's alluding to uh, also is the main stem of the Connecticut River below the, the dam basically, as you said, gets dewatered. So this is the, uh, you know, prehistoric riverbed. And basically the entire river is diverted into a power canal. And so that's kind of expropriating our public waters for you know, private commercial use, and then the utilities kind of sell the water-generated power back to us. So it's, it's profoundly unfair, and uh, I've been told by Native people from the West that there would be a war over that kind of thing. But of course, the, let's say the, the uh, colonization process in the Northeast here has an age of about 400 years, and so people have not uh, really uh, reacted. Native people have not really reacted in an organized way, but clearly what's going on, for example, with the Mashpee Wampanoag, really uh, establishing, seeking indigenous rights to a free-flowing river and a free migratory fish movement uh, 
is really important for us. And so, yeah, having grown up, as I said, on the river, I can, I can attest to the fact that erosion due to that constant sucking and releasing of uh, tons and tons of water has just, it just created tremendous stress on the riverbanks. And I had a piece of property in my family um, uh, and uh, we, we had a camp on the Connecticut River. And I know that since my youth and nowadays, there's about 30 feet of frontage that has gone. So that has an impact on property, but also native people who camped along the river had hearth sites, village sites, that's all fallen into the water and is buried and lost and gone. So uh, for those of us who have indigenous um, concerns, it really is something that has to be addressed. And the utility has managed to tap dance around that issue forever and to the point of denying that they had any responsibility and that kind of thing. So this is part of the relicensing process. What to do about that erosion? And that is an, a real sticking point among many others. Yeah, so the issues are not only ecological, they are archaeological and mm -hmm. economic yep. and social even. Mm -hmm. Spiritual. Spiritual. Yes. I really like swimming at this place in, um, in Montague called Rock Dam, kind of mm -hmm. known as Rock Dam. And there's all these signs around there that say, danger, rise, like fast rising waters, do not swim here. And it's just like, Wait, why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who has the right to tell me I can't mm -hmm. swim in this river? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, David, you mentioned the um, Wampanoag's um, declaration about river herring. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that it came about. It was an emergency declaration, and um, there was actually a youth group that had a big hand in making that happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's the uh, Native Environmental Ambassadors, and they worked with a national group, Bioneers, and uh, drafted this this emergency declaration and took it to the tribal council and convinced them to pass it. I think it's the first rights of nature law in Massachusetts and it's aimed at, you know, protecting these river herring, river herring for anybody who doesn't know are these little teeny fish mm -hmm. that are anadromous, which means that they are born in freshwater and then they go out, make their way out to the ocean for their adult life. And then they come back in up the estuaries and the, the rivers to, to their mating in the, the springtime. And the loss of river herring, it's, uh, like about, it's about 95% depleted. We have about 5% of what we used to have. There, there's a lot of study of herring uh, by the state and federal biologists trying to figure out how to preserve and bring the population back. And these young people are saying that Wampanoag have this traditional duty and obligation to, to care for these, these um, herring and that herring have the right to, to, to thrive and make it up to their, their um, breeding places and back out and that it's, they're taking out their, the dams are causing all this problem, which is absolutely true. The existence of the dams is the primary reason for this drop in, in numbers. And there are scientists at UMass who've done studies to show that were the dams to be removed, the population would rebound and 
So anadromous fish like that bring in really necessary nutrients from the ocean to freshwater habitats. That's really important ecologically. They also are fish that get eaten by larger fish, so it, it supports populations of larger fish. Also think about how there used to be salmon in the Connecticut River. That's right. Bef- before. <laughs> and the salmon, the um, the federal government tried for years, spent a huge amounts of money trying to reintroduce salmon, and eventually gave up. But uh, it's the dams that are the big issue with salmon. Well, we are speaking with Sarah Matthews, the co-founder of the Western Mass Rights of Nature, David Brule, president of the Nolan Beaker Project, and Livia Charles, who's a graduate student at UMass working on a thesis about the rights of nature. We'll talk more about this right after this. All right, hello and welcome back to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and we are speaking with Sarah Matthews from Western Mass Rights of Nature, David Brule from the Nolan Beaker Project, and Livia Charles, who's a graduate student at UMass, um, working on a thesis about the rights of nature. So, Livia, you've been looking at um, cases where the rights of nature have been implicated all over our country. Um, And we've talked already about how the river herring in Eastern Mass are um, being protected under this emergency declaration um, by the Wampanoag tribe and how the concepts being used here to protect the Connecticut River or to argue for protections for the Connecticut River and the relicensing of the dams and how it even stopped mining in Ecuador. So tell me what else you're seeing happening in your research. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I think it's really exciting. I mean, there's over 100 cases in the United States, and they're all across the country. They're all across um, the political spectrum, sizes of um, communities. And so, yeah, it's really resonating with a lot of different types of people. Also, a lot of Native nations have passed some sort of rights of nature resolution or amendment. So some examples... (laughs) Santa Monica passed a sustainability rights ordinance in 2013, and this has been used more like a policy where they've incorporated this idea of the rights of nature into their sustainability plan. So they have like reporting requirements around their groundwater and other um, like their air quality to measure it and then make changes if they're not meeting their goals. And that's all kind of been spurred by the rights of nature and their sustainable sustainability rights ordinance. And then in other places like in Pennsylvania and Ohio, communities have been passing, like Sarah mentioned earlier, um, passing laws that are specifically geared to stop specific corporations and extractive projects from coming into their communities, like Grant Township. An injection well was slated for their community and they passed the rights of nature law and they went through a 10 year legal battle. And in last year, the, um, the company up and left the community. So they essentially won Mm -hmm. by preventing the injection well from coming into their community, even though it is the rights of nature is still being fought legally in Grant Township. So I'll just give you one more case. In Orange County, Florida, which is a very politically split community and politically split um, state, the community passed a Rights of Nature charter amendment, which passed with 89% voter approval. So that's like really interesting and super cool. But then the 
state came in and preempted it. So that got shot down by the state. But just because a rights of nature law is not being upheld by the courts in the U.S. doesn't mean it's not still a success or a victory for that community or for the the ecosystems and the natural communities. Because the fact that people all across the country are resonating with this idea, I think, shows how the status quo is not working for us anymore, us being the not like 1% who are profiting off of this environmental degradation. So for a politician to see that a rights of nature law passed with 89% voter approval, I think is probably pretty compelling and might allow the rights of nature movement to be pushed forward more politically in our country, even if it's not necessarily going to be as easy legally to push it through because it's so hard to change our constitution and the courts are sort of the last to change when it comes to progressive Mm -hmm. new ideas. So, Especially these courts. Yes, especially in Florida. (laughs) I'm sorry, but why would the state preempt a local law passed by these people in Florida? What, What was the justification? Yeah, the justification was basically that the elected officials, including the governor, are put there by the developing companies and the corporations who want to continue to not respect nature and not um, allow nature to exist and, and thrive. So that is my understanding of why they would preempt it. And actually, they snuck it into a gigantic bill that was called the Clean Waterways Act or something along those lines. And a lot of the people didn't even know, including the state legislators, didn't even know that it was going into the bill. So um, very much kind of a corporate right-wing tactic to prevent these communities from from both the ecosystem and the human communities from surviving. <laughs> um, was this the community that tried to pass the law that said everyone has a right to clean water? So, well, okay. So there okay. was Orange County, Florida, is the one that passed the rights of nature law um, with this 89% voter approval. And then I think it's called, I think you pronounce it Titusville, is another county in Florida that passed a right to nature. So like in Montana, how those those youth won or the the kids won um, with that green amendment, the rights to nature, they passed like we have the right to clean waters. And that was also preempted. Like the their city, the Titusville city or county government, they ruled against the community's vote, which also passed with over 80 percent. I mean, it's it's like insane. I mean, it's like so um, scary, really. So undemocratic. Do you have something you want to say, Sarah? I was just going to say, yeah, alluding to that Montana, on a positive note, <laughs> alluding to the Montana case, um, you know, that it, that wasn't a rights of nature case where the, what those young people did, but it's similar in that it's an expansion of this idea of who has standing in court. So because those young people were recognized as, as having uh, standing to, to bring that case and they, they won. So although, yeah, the, the preemption is... I mean, I guess it's not surprising, um, but the the groundswell that that Livy is talking about, the sort of culture shift that you see happening, is very very exciting. And like the tiny river herring, there are more of us. So this concept, which is you know what rights of nature, what 
what Western Mass Rights of Nature is about, bringing community together, bringing us together to advocate together for what's best for us. And the numbers <laughs> will win out. <laughs> yeah. How? So we have a thing in this country called the Environmental Protection Agency. We also have the Department of Environmental Protection on the state level, and we have local conservation commissions. What aren't they doing that is necessitating groups like the Western Mass Rights of Nature to come in and introduce this concept? Like, what are you doing differently? Yeah, they don't. They don't have authority in that way. So that that's the problem with the existing legal framework. So, um, you know, people have rights, corporations have rights, but the environment doesn't. So in these proceedings, like in a in the FERC relicensing proceeding, there is no voice for the river. I mean, Nolan Beaker Project is trying to be that voice, but there isn't, a, say, a guardian. for. There's no recognition of the river as having standing for herself. And so the most that can happen is a mitigation of harm. So what I mean by that is that there's this license at issue. There's a, there's a company that wants a license to do something extractive, something very extractive in the case of what's going on with the Connecticut River. And the most that the Department of Environmental Protection can do or um, FERC can do is to condition that license. There's no ability to prevent the license from being issued because of what it's going to do to the river because the river has no voice in the proceeding. That, that's, that's the issue with our, with our agencies. They can sort of mitigate harm, but they can't prevent the harm entirely. You know, and th this happens time and again. I, it's part of my practice. You know, th there's some sort of developer that needs a, a per there's some kind of threatened ecological, you know, animal or environment, you know, ecosystem, and there's a need for a permit. And so the developer's going to get the permit. <laughs> It's just a question of what are the terms of that permit going to be. And that just happens again and again. Whereas if the system were reformed to give a voice or standing or to acknowledge the, the, um, the right of the ecosystem itself, it would be a fair process. It would, be a, it would result in, in a better outcome for the people who care that live in the local community and the environment. I've been kind of thinking about it in terms of like pollution, like the Environmental Protection Agency will say, okay, this many parts per billion of this pollutant is considered safe, so this company is allowed to put this many parts per billion of this pollutant in the river. Whereas Rights of Nature says, hey, this river has existed for millions of years without pollution in it. What gives you the right to put it in there in the first place? Mm -hmm. You got it. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. um, People say the Endangered Species Act is sort of like a right rights of nature sort of um, law. But I mean, the Endangered Species Act only um, like kicks in once a species is threatened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, right, endangered. So it's like, okay, if that's our one sort of safeguard mm -hmm. against, uh, you know, mass extinction or the extinction of a species or an ecosystem, I mean... That's, I don't know, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> well said, Livia. <laughs> All right, thank you. We are speaking with Livia Charles. She is studying rights of nature at UMass Amherst right now as a graduate student, and Sarah Matthews. She's an attorney and co-founder of the Western Mass Rights of Nature, 
and David Brule, the president of the Nolan Beaker Project, which we will talk about more right after this. Hello and welcome back to Panorama. We're talking about the rights of nature with Sarah Matthews from Western Mass Rights of Nature and Livia Charles, who's a graduate student studying this concept, and David Brule, who's the president of the Nolan Beaker Project. Um, so, David, could you tell us a bit more about the Nolan Beaker Project and what you've been working on? Yeah, for sure. Certainly, the word Nolan Beaker in itself sometimes is a tongue twister for people who have not heard the term too often. It's an uh, Abenaki word meaning uh, the calm place between two rapids. So that's kind of our role. We are, yeah, we are the, a, a calm, uh, hopefully uh, neutral and fair organization. We serve as intermediaries between the tribal and non-tribal communities. If you have tried to reach uh, tribal historic preservation officers or tribal offices, you will learn that it's pretty difficult. There just um, are not enough Native people in those offices following up on emails and phone calls and all of that. So we kind of serve that role as an intermediary. Uh, we had our beginnings uh, in the uh, mid-1990s when, uh, as our precursor group called the Friends of Wissitinawa came together to uh, save a... 10,000-year-old village site that was destined to become a Walmart uh, plaza, shopping plaza, which is horrific. And it, it, it looks, overlooks the Connecticut River right on that stretch of river that is, we were talking about being dewatered. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show grassroots uh, efforts can work. So we, we did prevent um, that from becoming a shopping plaza totally desecrating that 10,000-year-old village and the burial ground that is associated with it. And um, we, once that battle was won, a lot of the activists went on to other challenges. But that meant that there was this 40-acre parcel that uh, needed friends and needed protection. So we used the environmental protection laws uh, and uh, got a conservation restriction placed on that. And since then, uh, we have pretty much evolved into a, an organization, a non-tribal organization, that uh, promotes uh, the cultures of the Northeastern uh, indigenous communities. And so uh, that has worked out uh, really well. We have about three or four events a year, but the big one being a music festival in uh, Turner's Falls, ironically named. I know, I hesitated <laughs> to say it. I said Montague earlier because <laughs> uh, of Yeah, same here. So just for information here, the, at the falls there was a horrific massacre of close to 400 Native people who were seeking refuge during the King Philip's War in 1676. And uh, that... A particular site has been, uh, let's say, in, in terms of uh, healing, it has been a site that really needed mm -hmm. attention, spiritual attention. So we've that has been part of our mission. But uh, part of that mission, therefore, is this music festival near the site, which has contributed to a lot of the healing. Year in, year out, every first 
uh, weekend in August, there are close to 30 different tribes represented, and typically about six or seven that are featured in terms of uh, uh, music presentations and, of course, artisans. So that's kind of what Nolombika Project is all about, the Nolombika Project. We, uh, we serve as an intermediary. We serve as uh, a rather unique job that we have in terms of uh, presenting or finding ways to fund uh, indigenous people to present their stories. So basically that's what we do. And because our the land that we helped save from development is right on the banks of the Connecticut River, it's a kind of a, uh, a natural flow that we would seek to be interveners in this relicensing process. I have to point out that we have been doing this intervening uh, since 2013, mm. and we have yet to have anything to show for it. Mm. Mm. The FERC agency has delegated to the utilities the job of pulling all the stakeholders together, bundling their requests, finding a way to uh, get everybody to agree that this is a cool thing to do. So various interests, not only the indigenous cultural resources that we represent in terms of preservation, but also the whitewater community, the uh, fish and flow, uh, you just name it. There's about six individual stakeholder groups that FERC just doesn't want to have to deal with. So they are basically turning it over to the utilities to do all the negotiation. As I said, it's lasted since 2013 that we've been trying to get something. And uh, it's like we get real close and then, no offense, but the team of lawyers comes in and changes our agreements. <laughs> the goalposts get moved and we still don't have any agreement. And so they're operating under a license that is 10, 12 years old. Yeah. in those conditions that were negotiated 50 years ago. So that's what we are uh, currently part of our organization is dedicated to uh, representing not only the river but also the indigenous cultural values associated with the river, like what you mentioned about the Wampanoag. And uh, in conjunction with the Abenaki who have homelands along the Connecticut River and the Nipmuc, who are, let's say, a, a tribal community that has a long-standing history of um, being in the vicinity around the falls and who lost hundreds of their tribal members to the massacre perpetrated by uh, William Turner and his raiders in 1676. So we've been, uh, our role therefore has been to pull together these groups and to be on the spot and negotiating and arguing and proposing and getting really frustrated for the last 10 years. It, it, it is such a powerful event that you pull together. What David's been talking about is the Pocumtuck Homelands Festival, but like you said, 30 different tribes are represented there. And it was at that very event that I met Sarah Matthews <laughs> and her group, Western Mass Rights of Nature. And so um, what was your experience at that event and, um, I don't know, getting to meet other people and trying to find new members? Oh, it was, it was really wonderful. Yeah, we had reached out to 
um, an Olympica project, and um, and they graciously and asked us, you know, invited us to table there, and we met a lot of wonderful people, and the it, we were part of, you know, it truly is a, a healing experience to be part of the festival, to hear the stories and and to meet the people, and and just to feel part of this really wonderful community. And can I just add something that Sarah actually has said many times to me is that this idea of the rights of nature, harmony with nature is really all about that. Like what the Nolan Bika project is doing too, of like that we're all interconnected, like humans in the river, in the ecosystems, and also to each other. And there's so much healing to be done amongst each other as well as with the river. Yeah. The work itself creates the healing that's needed. It's it's really beautiful. Yeah, you were definitely a joyful, cheery group when I found when I found <laughs> you. So very magnetic. And there's another event coming up that is being done in partnership with the Nolan Beaka Project and Western Mass Rights of Nature. Would you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. Um on Friday evening, February twenty third at Greenfields Community College, Hartman Dietz who's Mashpee, member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, will be leading a Rights of Nature presentation. Hartman's been doing Rights of Nature work for many years, and he's um, also involved with the Charles River Watershed Association. So it should be, it should be a really wonderful evening. And we're also, that, that event is being co-sponsored with Western Mass Rights of Nature and the Nolan Bico Project. And the Nolan Bico Project, do you want to talk about the dance the next day? Sure. Um, so the social dance, uh, the next day, Saturday, 24th, 24th. February 24th, came about uh, from the Nolambika Project board and people familiar with um, indigenous uh, traditions noted that in February, we really need to get out of doors and hoot and holler and stomp <laughs> around. So it's technically, it's really called a stomp dance. <laughs> and so that will be happening. And all of this is free, as is the Pocomtac Homelands Festival. There's never any admission charged. There will be uh, Hartman Dietz is going to be leading with several of his tribal cousins and uh, youth. He'll be leading a social dance, which uh, usually lasts about four hours. And it just involves a few uh, at the beginning, uh, certainly uh, uh, a few comments by the uh, indigenous people present, typically Liz Coldwind of the Chabonagungamag Band of Nimbuk Indians uh, is always featured, as is Rich Holshue of the Elnu Abenaki. I say a few words, and then uh, Hartman will probably say a few words, and then we'll start dancing. And so basically, it involves all kinds of game dances as well as what we would have called a snake dance and chanting um, in uh, the language that Hartman will teach us. So it's always a lot of fun. It's often exhausting, but it's just what you need on a middle of February afternoon. So I hope people will turn out. It's always a lot of fun. We have hundreds of people who turn up there. So do you have to know any moves before going? No, there? no, no, no. no it's Beginner's all, welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, totally. Uh, and uh, Hartman will uh, teach the dances. Over the years, we've had uh, dance leaders from different tribes, and we always keep that varied. So this year's the Mashpee Wampanoag. In the past, it's been the uh, Hassanamisco Nipmuc and then the Pequot Narragansett. So it'll be fun, and I think it's uh, a great occasion to come out, as I said, what we do in Nolumbika Project is to 
find funds to sponsor these types of things. And so it's always a total hoot. As a matter of fact, it's a holler and a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, and I'd just like to say that um, the workshop that's being held at Greenfield Community College on February 23rd is going to be recorded. So if you're listening to this podcast after February 23rd, 2024, you can still listen to the presentation on the rights of nature if you check out the Nolan Beacon Project's website. Um, and if anyone has listened to this podcast and they are interested in rights of nature and they want to get involved locally, how can they get in touch with Western Mass Rights of Nature? Um, they can uh, look us up on our website, Western Mass Rights of Nature, and they can sign up for uh, to receive information about events and, and advocacy work. And they can also find out about we meet regularly and they're welcome to come to our meetings. And we have been speaking with... Sarah Matthews from Western Mass Rights of Nature, Livia Charles, who is a UMass student, graduate student, um, working on a thesis about the rights of nature, and David Brule, the president of the Nolan Beca Project. And you have been listening to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and thanks for joining us. <laughs>